Uh, now what I get to do the privilege of is uh, introducing our guest preacher. If you saw the uh, email announcement around this week, we have Andy Beams, who's going to uh, preach for us. He's been, this is probably his, what, third, fourth time preaching for us, something like that. He's one of my favorite preachers. It's always a blessing when he's down here. We've been friends with him for probably eight or nine years now. Our families have, and he and Mindy and their kids are just such a, a blessing to their community. God has used them in so many ways up in Denver, and he's blessed our church as he comes and brings the word. Uh, it says in his, uh, his bio, he wrote that uh, he loves playing guitar, mandolin, violin, indie films, reading Puritans, and it says long walks on the beach with Colbert. Um, but that's, that's plural, beach, like long walks. I don't remember going on many walks with you, but maybe that's a future hope that we can have some, some joyous moments in the future of walking on the beach together. So, uh, yeah, so um, if you are able, would you please stand, join me in standing for the reading of God's word as Andy prepares to come preach for us. And the scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 5, verses 17 to 20. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Colbert, I'm, I'm still hoping we can do a long walk on the beach at some point. I don't think that's out of the question. <laughs> he, he, every time I preach, there's always, they send me an email that says, write, write a bio for yourself. So I always add something about my love for Colbert in my bio, which is true. All right, so today we have a really simple uh, focus. Uh, we're looking at a, um, a verse where Paul commands us to sing. It's that simple. Paul wants, uh, w- wants us to be a singing people. That's what, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, and we're just unpacking two verses. So we're going to have a really zeroed in uh, focus. And, and here I'll even give you the three points of the sermon. Uh, first, uh, why do we sing? And secondly, what do we sing? And then if you'll just indulge me on our third point, we're going to zoom way out into other scriptures. And I want to talk about who is our worship leader? Who's our worship leader? So that'll be our third question. All right, so let me just ask you here at the beginning, because our first point is going to be, why do we sing? I want to ask you, what inspires you to sing? Even if you're not naturally a singer, I'm not naturally a singer, uh, but, but what, what inspires you to sing out wholeheartedly, to just put aside the fact that maybe you don't have a good voice, is to sing with all uh, emotion and, and, and uh, abandonment? And in fact, let me ask the question, uh, what, what's one of your best memories of singing with other people? Maybe not singing in the car by yourself or singing in the shower. Maybe what's one of your best memories of singing wholeheartedly with other people in such a way that it was an experience that you remember, that you have a big memory about? Um, I'll give you an example of something that, that recently happened with uh, me and my family. Uh, so um, let's see how do I explain this. There is an artist named David Gray. He's from England. And when my wife and I got married, uh, uh, he had an album that was really big. This is, uh, album came out about 25 years ago, and the artist's name is David Gray, and he's an Irish-British singer-songwriter, and we just loved him. And, and uh, when we were newlyweds, about two months into marriage, uh, his tour came through uh, Dallas, Texas, where we were living at the time, and we got to go hear him sing. And so we were newlyweds, deeply in love. And this is one of those albums, I don't know if you guys have any albums where you listen to the whole thing every song start to finish 
And so that's just a, uh, there's just such a memory uh, with that, of that album, being newly married, deeply in love, and getting to be on the front row and listen to him sing. Well, uh, he recently did a 25th anniversary tour of that album. The album we love so much is called White Ladder, and it was at Red Rocks. And so Mindy and I got to go to the 25th anniversary of the White Ladder tour, but this time we took our 16-year-old daughter with us. And so I pridefully, I'll say, I raise my children on, with great music. I really do. That children have great taste in music, because I do, and they listen to what I listen to. <laughs> and so I took Emma, and so Emma growing up, we'd play that album all the way through, just, just growing up, just something she heard that's just deeply embedded in her, her memory and everything. And so it was so amazing. We went to the concert at Red Rocks, and he came out, and I wish I could do his British accent. I can't, but he came out, and he said, I'm going to do... Uh, greatest hits for about 40 minutes, and then I'm going to go backstage, and then I'll come back out. I'll get to take about a 20-minute break, and I'll play the album from first song all the way through in the exact order. So he did greatest hits, and I've followed him through the years, but even some of those I didn't quite recognize, and people were into it somewhat. And then he goes back for the intermission, and I went to go get a beer. I hope that's okay. I hope I can still preach here. I went to get a beer during the intermission, <laughs> and uh, and I was in line with a bunch of guys about my age, and I said, are you guys David Gray fans? And one guy said, oh, I we played his, I walked down the aisle to David Gray, and the next guy had another memory. We all just had these huge memories of that one album. And I ran back to my seat, and as he came out as the first song, kicked off the first song of the album, and the, in all of Red Rocks began singing in perfect unison and harmony every lyric of every song. And I looked over, and my wife was singing with all of her heart, and I looked over next to her, and my daughter is singing out, and I just thought, this is about as happy as I could be right now. Man, to think what God's done uh, over the last 20 or so years. We have four kids. We moved to Colorado. All we've done, and now here my daughter's singing the song with us. I'll, I'll remember that forever. And of course, Red Rocks is so beautiful. I mean, you just can't beat that, that moment. And so I just want to ask for, I don't know what that would be like for you if it was singing at a wedding or singing at a, a small group or at a a worship service, or a concert. I wonder what that is for you. And I just want to ask, what is it about music that's so powerful? It's so tied to our memories. There's certain songs you hear on the radio, and I bet you go, oh, my sophomore year of high school, I had that on CD or tape. I was driving this car. You just remember things about music. It's so tied to our memories, to our emotions, to our experiences. What is it that's so powerful about music that binds us together, awakens emotions. It reminds us of special memories. Why is music so moving and powerful and so universal to the human experience? All over the world, people are singing, Christian or not. People are singing, and music is a part of our lives. So I want to show you today that God's people have always been and always will be a singing people. And Paul today is going to give us some very specific practical instructions on why we should sing, and what we should sing, and, 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 and how important that is to our collective spiritual growth. So that's where we're going to go today. Again, the points are, why do we sing, what do we sing, and who's our worship leader? So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and let me just give you a, just a quick bit of context so you know where Paul is in the letter, and then we'll jump into these simple two verses. So here's what Paul is doing at this point in the letter. Paul is describing spiritual growth and he uses this metaphor of taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. That's the big metaphor, putting off and putting on. He says, take off your old life, the old creation you used to belong to, your old humanity, your old way of life. Take it off like a pair of rotten 
stinky old clothes. Take those off and instead put on who you are in Christ. Put on the new humanity. Put on uh, the, the righteousness of Christ. Put on your new identity. Put it on like a, a you know, warm you know, pair of clothes fresh out of the dryer. So take off your old life, be done with it, and put on the new life. That's the section we're in. And he's giving all these practical instructions and saying, take this off and put this on. Take this off and put this on. That's the rhythm he's in. So he says things like, put off falsehood and lying. Be done with that. That's your old way of life. Instead, put on the truth. Speak the truth. He says, put off bitterness and anger. Instead, put on tenderheartedness and forgive one another. As Christ. So it's, there's, there's a corresponding action, a putting off and then a corresponding putting on action. And there's this rhythm to this section. That's where we're at. And, and, and most of them are really obvious, like put off lying, put on the truth, put off bitterness, put on forgiveness. And so there's this flow, and that's where we are as we get to these instructions on singing. And I think this one, as he, as he gets right here in verse 18, uh, I, I, it's, the, the connection's not as obvious. Like it's obvious he goes, stop lying and put on the truth. This connection to me is a little, it's not as much on the surface. So look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but there's always this corresponding put off, put on. So don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So put off drunkenness, and then what's the corresponding positive action? Uh, be filled with the Spirit. And I think that's kind of odd. What does drunkenness have to do with the Spirit? That's not an obvious uh, connection. I mean, I, what I would expect is put off drunkenness, put on some soberness. Uh, put, you know, put off drunkenness and be like a good Baptist, empty out your wine bottles and put in Welch's grape juice. Like, do something like that, right? Sober no, October all year long. Whatever, something like that is what I was expecting. But instead, the corresponding thing to not being drunk is being filled with the Spirit. That's not an immediate, easy connection for me to see. But I think what's going on there is that when you're drunk, you are under the influence of that substance. If you get arrested, being, if you're intoxicated while you're driving... The charge on that, they call it a DUI, driving under the influence. So Paul's saying, don't be under the influence of alcohol where it affects all your actions and your thinking, but instead be under the influence of the Spirit where that colors and shapes all your thinking and acting, where the, the Spirit is, under, is, uh, is the one whose control you're submitting to. So it's interesting, that's an imperative, uh, this, this little line, be filled with the Spirit, that's a command, he's telling them to do something. And at the same time, I think this is interesting, it's passive. So it's not that you exert yourself and white-knuckle it and grit your teeth and fill yourself with the Spirit, but it's a sense of being dependent on the Spirit, um, being receptive uh, to the Spirit. Um, and so, so it's a command, it's passive, and then it's also, it's a, it's a present tense verb, so it's an ongoing feeling. So he didn't say, it, do it one time, have one day when you're filled with the Spirit, but rather as an ongoing way of life, be continually Filled with the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit's work in your life. Be de- dependent on the Spirit. Be receptive to the Spirit's work so that you become more and more like Christ. So, as we hear that, I don't know if you talk a lot that way. Uh, I grew up around a lot of unhealthy, charismatic stuff. I'll just be honest. So when I hear that, a little part of me goes, oh, watch out, because people say they're filled with the Spirit and sometimes can do wacky things. But that's not what Paul's doing here. This is a safe, good, good passage. But he says, be filled with the Spirit. And when I hear that, I don't know about you, but I think that sounds really good. I like the idea of having more of the Spirit's work in my life, like hearing the Spirit and submitting to the Spirit, hearing conviction and direction and guidance 
from the Spirit. I want more of that. I want to be more and more free from sin that just makes me miserable and hurts other people and more alive to God. I, I want that. But how? How do you do that? How do you be filled with the Spirit? How do you go about doing that? That feels kind of ethereal. What are the handles? How do you go about doing that? If you ask some people, they might just say, well, I just go to the mountains and I'm just filled with the Spirit. But that's not what he's saying here. It's not something we get to just make up uh, whatever we like and call that being filled with the Spirit. So if we ask, great, how do we do that? What exactly do I do? How do I go about being filled with the Spirit? He answers that in the next verse. He practically says, and here's how you do it. Here's a modifying phrase that shows here's what being filled with the Spirit is all about. It's verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So Paul, how do I invite the Spirit's transforming work into my life? How can I submit to the power of the Spirit? The first thing he says is sing to each other and, and make melody and praise God with your whole heart. It's the first thing he says. That's, that's how he fleshes, begins to flesh that out for us. So I don't know about you, but how I would think he would answer that question if you were to ask me, how does the Bible say to be filled with the Spirit? My immediate answer might be Bible study. We're listening to good preaching like Colbert's preaching or uh, prayer, fasting, meditation, solitude. But the first thing he says on how we're filled with the Spirit is sing and sing to each other and sing to God. That's the first thing that comes to Paul's mind here. So I wonder how that strikes you as you hear that. Um, you might think, well, Andy, you don't know me, but you might think you're an extrovert you're musical, you're emotive, you like that kind of thing. But me, I'm an introvert, and I'm not expressive, I'm not artistic, I'm not a good singer. But this is not just for certain people in the church, or for certain giftings, or certain personality types, or wherever you are on the Enneagram, whatever. This is, a, this is all of God's people. This is essential to what it means to be a spirit-empowered, spirit-filled people of God, is singing. So why do we sing? Well, Paul says this is one of the essential ways we submit to the Spirit's transforming work in our lives. It's one of the ways the Spirit aligns our heartbeat with His. This is an important rhythm in the community of God's Spirit-empowered people. Um, and so let's do this. I want you to see how important singing is to the people of God. Let me zoom out and just give you a bigger biblical picture on how essential a singing uh, is. And there's a great book, if you're interested in this topic, Mike Cosper wrote a book called Rhythms of Grace about singing and liturgy and worship. And I'm going to draw from that a little bit here. He gave a little retrospective on singing throughout the scriptures, so I want to footnote him here. But um, what you see in the Bible, for instance, here's some, here's some ways you see how essential singing is in the Bible. The Bible actually contains a songbook. Right in the middle, the Psalms. You have 150 songs written to God, and those were to be sung by God's people. Now, some people might say, well, the Psalms are prayers. And it's true that they are to be prayed, but they're actually put to music that's the most deeply they are the songs of God's people that people would sing uh, throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament uh, where we see that. And in the Psalms, there's the command to sing. There's the command for God's people to sing over a hundred times. Just in the book of Psalms, not to mention all the other places, the Bible commands for us to sing. Uh, and not only that, musicians were integral to the life of Israel. The, their musicians obviously were in the temple. In the king's court, there was music, and even there are certain times, one time in First Chronicles, where they put the, the priests, the, the, the worship leaders, the singers, on the front row of the battle lines. Throughout Scripture, we see singing's a big part of God's people. Um, and, and as you look through church history, as you look at great movements like the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin, like the Great Awakening, where Jonathan Edwards was one of the leaders there, or the Civil Rights Movement, 
which was also had a, it was a, a Christian movement as well. With all of those great gospel movements throughout church history, those were accompanied by singing, by, by songwriting movements. Great music was written during the Reformation and during the Great Awakenings and during the Civil Rights Movement. So it wasn't enough just to have a, a, a fresh theological vision. They also needed to get those truths embedded deeply down into their hearts, and that came through singing. And one other thing I want to point to is that as we look forward in redemptive history and look at the end of the age, look at one day when we are around the throne, when every tribe, tongue, and nation in eternity will sit around King Jesus, look what we'll be doing. This is from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is John looking ahead to our future for all who are in Christ. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the, and to the Lamb. For all eternity we will be a singing people. What's one thing you see the redeemed saints in heaven doing for all eternity? Singing. The people of God always have been and always will be a singing people. All right, that was kind of zoomed out. Let's zoom back into, into Ephesians. And let's look at the reason, the specific reason, that, that Paul gives for us to be singing, why we should sing. Verse 19 again. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's, that's a very horizontal. And by the way, if you notice, he says, addressing one another. This is actually one of the one another passages. You've probably seen those passages like love one another, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another, bear one another's burdens. This is one of the one another's here, to sing to one another. And then you see it also, so that's horizontal. You can see it's also vertical, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let me pull in a parallel passage. In Colossians, Paul says a very similar thing, but fleshes it out a little differently. I think it, it adds some nice color to help us understand this. Look at Colossians three sixteen, Very similar passage, but he adds a little flair to it I like here. Look at this. He says, let the word... Uh, I'll pause. I can hear you turning in your Bibles. All right. Colossians three sixteen. I love that. I'm used to people just glowing with ours. It's nice to actually hear physical pages being turned. Wow, this is interesting. All right. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. All right, so how do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? How do we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom? He says it right here. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. The way the church lets the word of Christ dwell in them richly, one of the ways that the church teaches one another the truths of the gospel, one of the essential ways that we get the gospel down into our bloodstream, Paul right here says, is through singing to one another. That's actually a community project. That the spiritual growth, the spiritual maturing of the whole body, part of it happens through singing. Uh, Mike Cosper that I referenced earlier in his book, speaking about this, told some, said something that really caught my attention. He described a time when he was very discouraged in his walk with the Lord. He spiritually was suffering. He was... Uh, beat down by a sin he was trying to get free of in his life and was struggling, and that he limped one night into a church service and sat on the back row and was asking God to, to help him, to encourage him. And he was just kind of at the end of his rope. He said an elderly man came and sat by him, didn't, didn't greet him, but just, just sat by him in the pew, and that the preaching, it was fine, but it really didn't penetrate. The, the praying and the liturgy, nothing got to him. And then after the sermon, uh, the, that, that guy next to him, he said he couldn't even stand, but the guy next to him stood and was singing and singing from the, 
the, the, the songbook, and the, the, the guy had a bad voice. He had a gravelly voice. He was out of tune, but the guy was singing, and he said he, he heard him sing these words. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it, is, it was finished. And he said something about God putting his truth in that man's lips to a melody sung to my heart, and something broke in me. That truth was for me, and God put it in that man's lips sitting next to me, and I got free. God did something. For whatever reason, it happened to not be the preaching or the, the praying or the fellowship that night. It was that moment God used the singing in someone else's mouth to, to penetrate, and, 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 and something broke in me that day. I received God's forgiveness in a fresh way, and I was set free in that moment. So who knows here, guys, as you gather together in this gym what God's going to use? It might be the encouragement of a brother and sister in fellowship. It might be the preached word. It might be something in the prayers. It might be something in the, the liturgy. It might be something as you come to take the bread and wine and remember Jesus' broken body for you. Or it might be the singing of your neighbor next to you at the table next to you. And in many weeks, maybe it's all of them working together. So our first question, why do we sing? We sing to saturate each other's hearts with the glories of the gospel so the Spirit might do its transforming work. That's why we sing. The Bible gives a lot of different reasons why we sing. This is the one Paul gives here. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful. We sing to help each other grow. We sing to welcome the Spirit's work, to align our heartbeats, our thinking, and our feeling with that of the Spirit. So that's why we sing. Let's look at what we sing. Paul, Paul tells us that too, and I think there's some helpful, practical insights here on, on what we sing. Look there in verse 19. Addressing one another with what? What do we sing? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So briefly, let's just think about that. First is the Psalms. Uh, we discussed uh, that already, but we see 150 songs in Israel's songbook. The Psalms were uh, in the, uh, you know, we can find those in the Old Testament. They were written about 600 to 700 years before this time that, that Paul is writing. And, and he's saying the New Testament church should continue singing these, 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 these beautiful traditions and songs passed down from the synagogues, we should continue to sing, to sing those. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in that very specifically, I just over the weekend discovered there was an article on Gospel Coalition about this songwriter who wrote uh, a, song, a psalm a week for three years, writing original music to all the psalms. It's called Poor Bishop Hooper. It is so good. Anyway, so check that out if you're looking for someone who specifically sings through all 150 psalms. They just released the 150th psalm this, this last week, so there's a little resource for you. Uh, secondly, it says hymns. So there, there are three different places in Paul's letters where Paul breaks out in hymns, actually in the letter, where, where theologians look at it and say the, the, the construction and the, the grammar right there, that's clearly some kind of early church hymn they would sing. And he's referencing here, that here uh, to make a point. And so he references hymns. Or let, me, let me give you a sample of one of the hymns. It's in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is one of the early hymns that people sang in the first century. I can't sing it. I don't know what the melody was, but here's the content. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He's before him, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Certain points in writing a letter, Paul's like, you know what, I think a song could express this better. And he just quotes a psalm, a, a hymn. So that's another. And then thirdly, it says spiritual songs. We don't really, we're not quite sure 
how to quantify or qualify what, what a spiritual song is. It's a song written with the help of the, the, help of the Spirit. Uh, surely these were new songs. By the way, I googled spiritual songs. A lot of wacky opinions out there. Don't do that. Just um, <laughs> a lot of weird opinions. Anyway, uh, what we think is there are songs that, like, like here where he says, be under the influence of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That has people seeking the Spirit's help, writing new, creative, fresh expression songs. So um, I think the big point here with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is Paul saying, let's have a wide, beautiful diversity of music in our churches, all the way from ancient hymns and psalms passed down, sung by those that went ahead of us in the faith from centuries before, all the way to brand new creative expressions. Let's, let's, let's do it all. As long as it's centered on Christ and it's something we can sing together, let's do that. Um, so um, I guess a few applications here for, for your church here that you could think through. Um, one would be to have some diversity in your expression, to sing those old hymns that are very wordy and a little clunky and have some a language, uh, some deep or some rich theological language. And some of these uh, new worship songs that are more simple and repeatable and things. Like, and that's great to have that diversity. And there's a richness to that. It's part of our, our inheritance that's come to us. Um, I also would say you want to sing songs that have gospel clarity, that are faithful to God's word. You wouldn't want to sing a song if it's heretical or misleading or fuzzy or unclear or doesn't point to Jesus. So we wouldn't sing songs like that. And the last thing I'd say is, and something you've done an incredible job today, is singing songs that are congregational, songs that are meant that everyone can sing. Some types of songs, um, they kind of call for a solo. They can only have maybe have a, a hard-to-follow rhythm or they're just hard dynamically for average people like me to sing. And so you want to pick songs that everyone can sing. So there's some practical counsel on that, all right? So our first question, why do we sing? To help each other grow, to sing gospel truths to each other, to invite the Spirit's work in us. What do we sing? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, a wide diversity of songs, all the way from beautiful uh, historical songs passed down to new, fresh expressions. All right, let's go to our third question. Who's our worship leader? So as you reflect on these two verses and apply them to yourselves as a worshiper, I think if you're really honest with yourself, it's really clear that we all have a lot of room to grow. If you think about these verses, like when's the last time you sung with that horizontal aspect in mind? When I'm singing, I'm usually, I'll be honest, I got four kids, I'm usually thinking, man, kids, please behave, please stay in line, please don't distract people. Or I'm thinking about if I like the song that was sung or if I can sing along with it. But rarely am I thinking about the spiritual growth of the people right around me. I just don't think like that. And this verse is stretching me to think that way. Rarely am I thinking about the good and the growth of those around me. I just don't. Sometimes I don't even sit near people where they can hear me sing. So I think that's, that's challenging. But also it has that, it has that um, uh, vertical aspect, singing to God with your whole heart. How, uh, we, we are so distracted. We are so prayerless. Our emotions and our spiritual fervor is hot and cold. And so uh, as, you, as you think and you look at the commands, there's a hundred commands to sing in the Psalms that we're commanded to sing with our whole hearts, with our whole being, with gratitude and everything for what God has done, even in the middle of our suffering and spiritual depression. But, but we don't. Often our worship is lacking. And so I think what we see here is that the question I'm going to ask is, how can we bring worship to God that he deserves? that he accepts, that's pleasing to his heart. What I want to say is we, we really need a good worship leader who can awaken something in us that we can't white-knuckle and produce in ourselves. 
You can demand someone sing with joy. You can put a gun to their head and demand they sing with joy, but it's not going to create joy. We need a really good worship leader who can awaken something in us that we can't awaken in ourselves. We need a perfect worship leader to bring our praises before a holy God. I want to introduce to you our worship leader. Jesus grew up singing. How do we know that? The New Testament talks about their regular attendance in the synagogue growing up, that that was their custom. So he grew up singing through the Psalms. That was an essential part of his worship going through it. He would have sung through all of Israel's hymn book, song book, all the way from songs of lament to songs of exuberant worship. Jesus marked significant events with singing. If you look at in the Gospels, after the Last Supper, he led them through the Passover feast. They sang the traditional psalms that, that, that go along with the Passover feast. And what Old Testament book did Jesus quote the most? He quoted the psalms the most. Of all the Old Testament books, especially when he was arguing with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he referenced the Old Testament, most of all the the help point to who he was and how he was the fulfillment of the Scriptures more than any other book. And as you go to the end of the Gospels, as Jesus hung from the cross, experiencing not just the excruciating pain of the crucifixion, but bearing the full and furious wrath of God deserved by his people as he hung, and in one of his last dying breaths, he cried out, My God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? And that, that, those were not spontaneous words. Those were original words. He was quoting Psalm 22. Let's look at that in Matthew 27, 46. This is as Jesus hung from the cross in one of his last statements from the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm was written about six or seven centuries before that moment. But if you go to Psalm 22, and you look it up, why Jesus chose that psalm, why that was deeply embedded in his soul, why he chose that moment to say that psalm, and look it up, it's eerie. It's eerily prophetic if you go to Psalm 22. For the first 20 verses, it's like the psalmist was sitting at the foot of the cross, writing out a documenting what was happening on the cross and beneath the cross. And Jesus, as he grew these, as he sang these songs growing up, recognize those songs would be about him. And it's, I'll just paraphrase it for you. He says, why have you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They've pierced my hands and my feet. They've stripped me bare. They've torn my clothes and are casting lots for them. They're wagging their heads at me saying, why doesn't your God come and save you? So many specific details in Psalm 22. And Jesus at that moment with that song he had sung growing up so deeply embedded in his soul cries out, in the language of the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing our God forsakenness for us. And I, I want to share something with you that I discovered a little bit ago about Psalm 22. That you just have those, I just love how Scripture is active and living, and you just keep discovering more and more things in it. So I just want to share something I discovered in Psalm 22 with you, and I hope you'll, you'll track with me as I go. That as you read it, as you get to verse 21, the psalmist, remember this was written seven centuries before Jesus, begins to say that while he was being crushed down in the dirt to death, all of a sudden he's rescued. In verse 21 he says, you've rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. All of a sudden the suffering king is rescued. And not only is he rescued from death, but all of a sudden he's worshiping with God's people. In verse 22, it really caught my attention. It says, I will tell of your, this is the, the one who's being crushed on the cross, who was pierced, the one who was being taken down in the, in the dust of death, down into Sheol, all of a sudden he says, 
I was rescued. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the congregations. I will praise you. Somehow the one who is being killed then goes and leads worship in the congregation and tells the whole congregation what God had done in vindicating them for death. So I was just reading this in my own like Bible study time in the morning, not preparing a sermon or anything, just reading it. And, and I, I thought that was weird. I was like, how does Jesus fulfill that? Where does Jesus, after his crucifixion, go into the congregation, tell everyone in the congregation, and awaken worship? Where does Jesus become a worship leader? If you know the Gospels, there's no point in that, was it 40 or 50 days after his resurrection, before he ascended? He didn't go back into the synagogue and lead worship. When does he do that? And I looked at one of my little commentaries, and it said, go to Hebrews, and look how the author of Hebrews interprets that. And I went, so I'm going to take you to that. I think this is fascinating. The book of Hebrews points us to this awesome reality of what's happening, of how Jesus has become our worship leader in his resurrection and ascension. And so first I just want to point out here in, uh, in Hebrews 7, look at this real quick. He says, now the point is, this is 7.1, uh, now the point is what we're saying is that we have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister, a worship leader in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in Hebrews, the, the uh, the author says, Jesus is our worship leader, is our minister, is interceding for us at the right hand of God, leading worship in God's presence for us. Okay, and then go down to Hebrews 2, 9, and 11. And here's where the author of Hebrews quotes this psalm about how this crucified king ends up leading worship and telling the world what, what has happened. Let me read this to you. This is, again, Hebrews 2, 9, and 11. But we see him... For who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So he says, Jesus taste the suffering of death for us so that we might be adopted to the family of God as his brothers and sisters, saying, here's the Hebrews, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. So the language here indicates, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is right now in the, leading a cosmic worship service. He's in the presence of all the redeemed saints and all the angels leading worship right now. And so, um, and so the author of Hebrews takes that verse from Psalm 22, I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll praise you. And says, this is actually happening right now. And he's inviting us to join them. And here's the crazy thing. In the scriptures, as you look, it actually doesn't end there with Jesus and the redeemed saints and all the angels leading a worship service. The scriptures show us that Jesus isn't the only one singing right now. You want to know why singing so deeply resonates with you? You know why singing is such a, so universal, the human experience? This Old Testament prophet, Zephaniah 3, he says this, Zephaniah three seventeen, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God himself is a singing God. Your heavenly father right now sings over you. Right now, you have a heavenly father who sings over you loudly. The reason we love singing so much is we were created in God's image, and we have a singing God. And so in closing, I just want to ask this. How can God sing loudly with great joy over you? and over me. Our worship is so lacking. Our prayers are so lacking. Our affections for him, our attention on him is so deficient from what he deserves. How can he look at us, our prayers, our worship, our singing, how can he accept those from a broken, sinful people like us while he is perfectly holy? How can God sing over us? 
How can he sing over you and over me with wholehearted singing? Not I'll let him in the back door. Not I'll tolerate him. But looks at you and with loud singing and joy sings over you. Here's how. It's because through faith he has united you to Christ. He has united you to Christ. That through faith you've become one with Christ and the perfect law-fulfilling life of Jesus has become your life. You can say you've lived the perfect life in the sense that you are in Christ. He lived the perfect life for you. And all your sin of worshiping things that are smaller than him, he went to the cross to bear the full wrath of those. So you have died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. So, all, so we have the perfect worship leader who's in the presence of God interceding for us. Right now he takes your prayers with all your distractions and all your imperfect wording and transforms them in a beautiful liturgy and, prayers your, and takes your prayers and brings them to God. He takes our songs and sings them to God. All of our worship is an echo of the perfect worship of our worship leader. And the reason he can sing over you with joy is because you are in his son. And all the delight, all the approval, all the affection he has for his son, he has for you. Because you are in Christ. So he sings loudly over you. As Jesus brings our prayers and brings us into his presence in the holy place. And when you know that, that awakens our hearts enjoy to want to sing in response to the gospel the story of our perfect worship leader and our singing God. One day, all who have come to Christ in faith, all who have despaired of their works and have come to him with the empty hands of faith, all who are in Christ, will stand before the creator God of the universe, the one who spoke and sparked the galaxies into existence. He will one day sing over you and me. What will that be like? Our minds can't stretch to fathom it, but it's so it is. May all of our worship be an amen and an echo to the suffering servant, our singing king who brings us into the presence of God, who then exults over us in loud singing. May our singing be a joyful response to the gospel of the singing God who delights over us in his son. Let's go to the Lord and pray, and as we pray, Jesus will intercede for us and we'll hear these prayers as he hears his son because he intercedes for us. Let's go to the Lord and thank him and just bask in the reality that he sings over us in his son. Our Father in heaven, these are weighty, heavy things. These are deep, these are deep theological truths you've revealed in your scripture about singing. That it's not just a surface activity, but it's a deeply spiritual one. It's one that the spirit uses so, Father, would we join that worship gathering of the redeemed and of the angels and know that all our worship is an echo of King Jesus. And, Father, we ask that, that, that we truly would be under the influence of the Spirit, that we would lay down our agendas and submit to and yield to and listen to your Spirit so we become more and more like Jesus, and that singing would be one of the essential ways we do that for each other, and in one of the essential ways we bring glory to you. And Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, give us like new spiritual taste buds to savor these realities that you actually sing over us. You don't just tolerate us. You don't just let us in the back door. You sing loudly over us because we are in your Son. And everything, all the approval and delight, we, uh, the acceptance we long for is already ours in him our suffering servant, our singing king, our worship leader. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.
So I think at this point what you guys do is you do some discussion at your tables. And so I have a few questions. Let's put those up. Let me read them from here. Um, so what stuck out to you in the passage or in the sermon today? Was there anything new that stretches you in how you think about singing? That could probably take your whole time right there, but I'll read these others. <laughs> in your own words, what does it mean to follow Paul's instruction to be filled with the Spirit? Why is singing so important to our spiritual growth? And how, how does recognizing Jesus as our worship leader shape how you worship? Don't feel any obligation to go in order. Pick your table, pick the one you want to you wanna do that would help you, and uh, go from there. So um, just transition. All right. Discuss among yourselves. <laughs> All right. We're going to transition to communion. So. Well, so the Word of God demands a response, and spoiler alert, today's response will be singing, but, uh, and we'll talk about a few other responses, but, uh, you know, uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, Andy was talking about Hebrews. You know, I also thought of uh, Hebrews 12, where we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and Hebrews 13, where... Uh, uh, we come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So we're not alone. As Andy said, we're not alone when we sing these. And we're not. And uh, God is singing over us. And let's bask in that, like he said. Uh, uh, I appreciate that we preach the word of God here. I appreciate that Andy preaches the word and Colbert preaches the word. The word's so important. That's it's the words of eternal life. And so that's why we preach it. That's why we talk about it at the tables. That's why we talk about it in our DCs and hopefully we talk about it at home and read it at home. Um, yeah. But the word of God is not just to know it, it's to be affected by it. And uh, one of the effects I want to talk about just very briefly is love. So I read this a uh, week or so ago. It says, 1 Timothy 1.15, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So hopefully the pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith uh, results from God's word. But the point is that it issues from love and it issues forth in love. And so I, I don't want us to forget that uh, there's a, a reason we do all this. It's to love each other, to love God. So, yeah, if you ever, um, as we do communion, we do open communion. Anyone who is a believer in Christ can do the, come to the table. We got tables around with the elements. Uh, we can respond by giving. Uh, there's a box in the back or there's a spot on the app that we can respond in prayer. We can pray at the table. You can pray by yourself. Jessica and I will be in the corner. You can, we'll be happy to pray with you. Uh, and if you're not a believer, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, we ask you don't do communion. However, we do want you to come to Christ, to know, as Andy talked about, his suffering servant, that Jesus suffered and died for us, and he loves us. And so if you haven't appropriated that, now's a good time. Something else to pray about. So, yeah, and we do communion. We do this to remember Jesus and what he has done. And uh, he said, uh, 
you know, this cup is my blood that is shed for you, and this bread is my body broken for you. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So uh, as we do this, let's bask that God is uh, singing over us and remember what Jesus has done. Let me pray. Lord, uh, Lord, help us to, to worship you in spirit and truth, to come to you, just to bask in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.